He doesn't walk. All of a sudden, he is jumping up and down, and he is praising God, and this healing gets people's attention. And that opens the door for Peter and John to preach the gospel to the point where 5,000 people come to believe. 5,000 people, all because of that one healing. Now, this kind of revival not only got the attention of the community, but it also gets the attention of some of the Jewish leaders, and they're annoyed. They're greatly annoyed because Peter and John are telling them, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, so they confront Peter and John, and they say, don't talk about Jesus to anyone anymore. Don't talk about how Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter and John basically say, no, we, we can't listen to that. Right? We can't help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And so what the Jewish leaders do is they threaten them. And that's what brings us to our passage here today. And in verse 23, it says that when they were released, they went to their friends, they reported what the Jewish leaders said to them, and that is what sparks this spontaneous prayer meeting. Now, by the way, as an aside, I do think we should remember a very important point, that anytime there is a work of God, a powerful work of God, a powerful movement of God taking place, I think it's always accompanied by opposition. Uh, and the opposition is usually going to be both external and internal. So if you remember when the temple is being built in Nehemiah, you have external opposition because you have the foreign nations uh, trying to stop the building project. But you also have internal opposition because fellow Jewish people were using it as an opportunity to exploit other Jewish people who were poor. The same thing happens in the early church. The church is growing exponentially. I just told you, 5,000 came to believe in Jesus, and you have external opposition in the form of persecution here. But you know, in the very next chapter, you have some internal opposition in the form of Ananias and Sapphira when they lie to the apostles about uh, their giving. And so you see, God is doing this amazing work in the early church, and he's establishing his church at this point. And of course, there's going to be opposition. Of course, there's going to be external opposition in the form of persecution. Now, when we read about stories of persecution, uh, I doubt that it really registers with us in terms of what that means, because here in the West, we don't experience that kind of thing every day, right? Uh, Maybe the worst that Christians will face in New York is, you know, ridicule, being made fun of. Um, But compared to what Christians face in other nations or in other eras in history, you know, ridicule is actually not that bad. If someone threatened you and told you, stop talking about Jesus, I think for many of us, it would probably shake us. If they said, I'm going to hurt you, if they said, even, I'm going to fire you, if they said, I'm going to take your property, I'm going to take your freedom, I'm going to kill you, if you talk about Jesus, just put yourself in that position. How are you going to feel? I think you, you probably feel a little bit scared and a little bit afraid. If you're part of this early Jesus movement and you're being threatened, you're going to say, oh, if I keep talking about Jesus, am I going to die? You know, we're going to look at fear in greater depth in the spring. And if you remember in the beginning of this year, I said the two things I want to focus on is prayer and fear. Uh, In this passage, it actually comes together in a wonderful way. You know, fear is a very powerful force, and we'll get more deeper into it in the spring. But think about all the things that you know you should do or should be doing, and you don't do it because you're afraid. You know, in the past year, we learned a lot about our, our society and the way that uh, women were treated by powerful men in the workplace, right? Why didn't more people prevent this from happening? Why didn't more people speak out or investigate uh, when there were rumors or when there are allegations? Uh, my guess would be fear probably played a major role 
people are probably afraid of getting fired. People are probably afraid of making an enemy. People are probably afraid of forfeiting their career. People are probably afraid of losing ratings. People are probably afraid of a number of things. And because of fear, someone who believes in certain ideals and a certain way of living, fear can make them contradict their beliefs in an instant. Fear can turn a decent person into a hypocrite very, very quickly. Now, it's not as though, right, churches, Christians are exempt from this because Christians experience the same kinds of things and fall into the same kinds of traps. Christians are swayed by the same kinds of fears and uh, are just as susceptible to ignore their own beliefs for the sake of self-preservation. And that's why persecution and ridicule are such powerful tools to prevent the gospel from being preached. I remember I, I was talking to a person many years ago and uh, he was saying, you know, it's, it's hard to even just admit that I'm a Christian at work uh, because uh, at my workplace, people always just make fun of Christians as being like these backwards, unintelligent, uh, sometimes bigoted people. And if that's how you know, people think about Christians, uh, it's, it's really hard to be associated with Christianity uh, for the sake of self-preservation. And uh, maybe some of you have that experience as well. You know, I was part of a book club. I think I've shared this story before, but I was part of a book club a number of years ago. And in this book club, people were just talking about how anyone who believes in uh, the supernatural or miraculous stuff uh, like the resurrection, they, they can't be intelligent people. And I raised my hand and I said, you know, I'm a Christian. I think Jesus rose from the dead in history. And uh, yeah, they were like, oh, ooh. <laughs> And, you know, honestly, in that moment, I wasn't really afraid of uh, telling people I believed in the supernatural in the Bible, uh, maybe because I'm a pastor. Maybe, you know, I, I feel pretty confident <laughs> in that, uh, even from an intellectual perspective. But, you know, what if they had said to me in that moment, or what, what if they were talking and they said, I really hate Christians, and I want them to go to jail, and I want them to die. You know, if I meet a Christian, and if he starts talking about Jesus, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to beat him down, Right? If somebody said that, I would probably have been really scared to raise my hand and say, hey, I'm a Christian and I believe in the resurrection and I think you should too, right? Now, what's remarkable, I think, about this prayer is that they could have prayed, God, make these Jewish people, uh, these Jewish leaders go away and stop bothering us. God, make it easier for us to preach the gospel and make greater pathways for us to preach the gospel so that we don't get hurt while doing it. Uh, God, give your Christian believers more wealth and more political power so that we can do uh, what you want us to do. They could have prayed all these things, but that's not what they pray for. What do they pray for? They say this, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what they pray. And that tells you everything you need to know about what it is that they thought they needed in that very moment. It wasn't a change in circumstances, but it was greater strength to be bold in the face of opposition. It was to be able to overcome their fear and have greater courage to be able to do what God wants them to do in talking about Jesus, even if it costs them their lives. You see, again, this was a special moment because the church was starting. The Holy Spirit had come down on Pentecost. Thousands of people are repenting and believing in Jesus, and they knew in order to be faithful, what they needed was to overcome fear and to be bold. 
Now, through this series, I think uh, we're seeing a very familiar structure in terms of how people pray. And oftentimes in the prayers in the Bible, it begins with some kind of address to God. And that address usually relates to the very thing that they are praying for. Here, they lift their voices together and they say what? Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That is how they come to God in prayer. That is how they address him. They're saying, God, you created the entire world and therefore everything is under your control. And then what do they do? They, they read Psalm 2 or they recite Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the way that they apply this psalm is they say, look what happened to Jesus. You had guys like Herod and Pontius Pilate, and along with other Gentiles, along with the people of Israel, gathering against the Lord's anointed, gathering against Jesus. But then in verse 28, they know, they acknowledge, they say this was all done, not by chance, not, not randomly, this was all done according to God's plan. This was God's plan all along. And therefore, they look at their situation, what's happening to them in their situation, and they also probably know that even this opposition, even this persecution, even what is happening to them is according to God's plan. Because it happened with Jesus, why wouldn't it happen with the church? Now, if this is something you believe, that God is in control of all things, I think there's two ways that you can respond to hardship and struggle and suffering. Uh, if you're going through some kind of hardship and you believe you're ex- experiencing this hardship is, a, your experience of it is according to God's plan, you can get mad at God, right? And you can blame God for the situation. And I, I think that's probably why a lot of people struggle and eventually fall away from following Jesus. Uh, I'm sure many of you have friends who went through something hard and fell away because they got angry at God. They said, if God is in control, why is this happening to me? They're going through some health issue or some financial issue or they're just not happy with the way their life turned out overall and they thought their life would just be better. And they say, God, if you are in control, how could you do this to me? How could you let my life look like this? And, uh, you know, what oftentimes happens, a, a, a fellow Christian friend will try to encourage them and say, you know, brother, sister, God is in control. And they receive that and they say, that is so trite, right? <laughs> that sounds really trite. And they don't really derive any kind of comfort or strength from, from hearing that. And you see, that's, that's why suffering is actually uh, very powerful because it can either draw you closer to God or it can push you further away. But when you go through suffering and when you come out on the other end, you will not be the same afterwards and your faith will not be the same afterwards. Now, the other option is to do this, and it's to do what the believers did here, and it is to turn to God in the midst of their troubles and actually draw strength from the fact that God is in control. It's to hear that God is in control and derive that sense of comfort and strength in order to persevere. And the way you go, I think, largely depends on how much you really trust God and how much you really believe that God is good. But, you know, let me say a few things as to why the sovereignty of God should be really a rich resource for believers and why it was a source of strength for the early persecuted church. Think about fear for a minute, and what usually lies at the core of what makes us afraid? What is that thing? I think what lies at the core of many of our fears is actually some kind of chaos, some form of chaos, some expression of chaos and loss of control. I have been in one car accident in my life, And, you know, I'm very proud of that. Only one car accident. I've been driving for a long time. And I remember when it happened. It happened on a snowy day on on Christmas Day of all days. I was driving home from church. 
And uh, at the time, it was in New Jersey, and I was going on the New Jersey Turnpike, and you know, like the Meadowlands and like the Swamplands. That was my exit. So in the snow, I was like making an exit, and the car, it just kept going, right? It was like sliding across the ice, and I eventually just crashed into the fence, into the Swampland, and the car started filling up with water. And uh, you know, the car wasn't totaled, so I had the car afterwards, but for about six months, it smelled like swamp. Uh, if you've ever been in a car accident, that, that's like a really scary situation. So I just sort of kind of remember, and I was like turning. I was like, oh, the car's going on. like turning. I have no control. I was hitting the brakes. No control. It wasn't doing anything. The car just kept sliding and sliding. And that's like a very fearful thing, uh, losing control of driving. And it kind of, you know, makes you turn white. And it's like, uh, whatever happens next, I have no control over it. You know, if a government were to ever uh, fall uh, and there's complete anarchy and you don't really know... Uh, who's in control, that's a really scary situation if you ever live in that kind of moment because we need someone to have control. That's what gives us a sense of comfort and a sense of peace. Why is it, the, it, why is it that the first thing people say in the midst of panic and what do they say to a panicked crowd? We have the situation under control. Why do they say that? Because they don't want this crowd to become panicked and to uh, run amok in fear. That is ultimately what is going to calm people down. You know, even something as minor as the delay uh, on a subway, uh, don't you feel better when you hear the reason why your train is not coming? When somebody says, oh, there's signal problems, or oh, there's police activity, or oh, there's equipment problems, you feel a little bit better when you're just like waiting there and you have no idea what's going on and you're waiting there for 30 minutes and the train hasn't come. Uh, Why does that make us feel better? It, It tells us that this, there's a problem, somebody knows about the problem, and presumably somebody has some sense of control over the problem, and eventually, because of that, things are going to be all right. Now, there's so many more examples of this, but at the core of the very things we're afraid of, I think it's a sense of chaos, that there's no control. Now, though usually, the way we usually try to remedy that, our fears and deal with our fears, and uh, our sense of uh, you know, not wanting chaos, is we try to take control ourselves, Right? You know, I watched a Q&A with this entrepreneur on uh, CNBC, and he was saying that the reason you want to be successful and the reason why people want to make a lot of money is this. People want to be free. Free from somebody else's agenda, free from somebody else's company, free from somebody else's vision, free from somebody else's demand on your time. And the way I interpret what he's saying is this. The reason people want to make a lot of money and be successful is so you can have greater control over your life. It's a desire for control. I think everybody eventually wants that. And I know that there are certain seasons in life or certain kinds of personalities where it sounds attractive to go uh, where the wind blows and, uh, and just to kind of like let, let life take you where you, like where it takes you and that kind of thing. But I think for the most part, most people want a sense of order in their lives. Most people want something or someone to be in control. And I imagine that's part of the struggle of living in New York where things are changing all the time, where you're never sure how long you're going to live here. But you at least want control of that decision, I would imagine, which means you want to find a better job somewhere else before the job that you have is uh, lost and you're forced to move on because you get fired or laid off or something like that. That's part of the reason why hardships rattle us, right? It reminds us of the very fact that we are not in control at all. We're not in control of the present We're not in control of our destiny. When uh, our health declines, when a loved one's health is in decline, uh, even when a loved one's life is deconstructing for different reasons outside of uh, just mere physical health, 
when a career is failing, when the economy is erratic, or whatever else people would define as hardship in terms of their own experiences, it tells you this, you're not in control. And whatever happens and whatever will happen, you don't have control of it. And that's what makes people afraid. Now here's the thing. Even if our lives were actually fully in our control, which is not, it's not, but let's say, hypothetically, let's say our lives were completely in our control, who is to say that our lives are best when it is in our control, right? You see, that's the problem of the Old Testament. People did what was right in their own eyes. And I think a big part of the reason why they, why um, things were falling apart and why even today people are falling apart through things like anxiety and depression at a much higher rate, by the way, than previous generations is because of this. People are ultimately doing what is right in their own eyes and pursuing what is right in their own eyes. And that's a consequence of living in a hyper-individualistic society that revolves around the individual and the self for things like meaning and purpose and identity. And you see, the answer to our longing for order and for control, I don't think is going to be found in ourselves. I don't think that's a realistic possibility, but even if it were, it doesn't mean that we would even want to be in control of our lives because I don't think ultimately we know what is best for our lives. The answer is found in this prayer when they come to God and they say, Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. The answer lies in the fact that God is in control and that is better for us and that is better for the entire world. You know, when God created the world, he created order out of disorder that's part of his act as a creator in the beginning of genesis it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and what it is is it's a picture of chaos there's a bunch of chaos in the beginning before god created the world and you know what he did in creation he basically ordered all that chaos he brought order to a chaotic world he separated light from darkness he separated heaven from earth And there's this common refrain that says there was evening and there was morning after each day. There was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. And you see, order is created by God when he creates the world. And if he can bring order out of chaos when he created the world, then how can any kind of chaos that we perceive to be in our lives stand any chance to the creator and sovereign Lord, right? There's going to be nothing more chaotic than the beginning in Genesis. (laughs) And God brought order out of that. What chaos in our lives is not under his power and is under his control? What chaos in our lives can he not bring order out of? You see, when we go through hardships, We may never know the reason, God's reason for it. But the most powerful source of comfort, I don't think, is going to be found in the reason anyway. Uh, We think if we know the reason, that's where we're going to derive comfort. And maybe a little bit of comfort, right? Maybe it'll help us go through it. But ultimately, I think comfort is derived in a person, not in a reason. That person comes to us in the Son, in Jesus Christ. You know, as this prayer alludes to, Jesus was also someone who experienced hardship according to God's plan that had, he had predestined to take place. 
If you think about the life of Jesus, he'd be abandoned by most of the people who followed him. You know, he was a rock star at one point, but <laughs> he experienced sharp decline, and everybody abandoned him, even some of his disciples. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was sold out by Judas. He was wrongly convicted in court for crimes that he did not commit. He was beaten. He was flogged. And ultimately, he would go to the cross and die a gruesome death by way of crucifixion. Why? It was according to God's plan. Now, if you look at what happened to Jesus in a vacuum, you would say something like this. What? That's not fair. Why would God do something like that? It makes very little sense. But when you understand it in terms of eternity and what God was doing even before the foundations of the world were laid, you soon realize that that horrific act, that that death upon a cross produced the greatest victory out of the greatest loss, the greatest light out of the greatest darkness, the greatest joy out of the greatest despair. And we get to share in that victory. We get to share in that light. We get to share in that joy because of the suffering that Jesus went through according to God's plan. So even something as horrific as that was according to God's plan, predestined in time. That's what the early church is praying and acknowledging and saying. Now, I think the early church understood that, and they looked at what was happening to them through the lens of what happened to Jesus. And, you know, it's a good thing they did because uh, the persecution only got worse for them from this point on. Uh, In a few chapters, Stephen, uh, one of the first deacons of the church, you know, we just ordained our first deacons in February. Imagine like a few days later or a couple, maybe even a a month later, uh, you lose one of those deacons because they get, right, they get killed because of great persecution. That's what happened to the church in Jerusalem. They ordained their first deacons and uh, Stephen, one of their first deacons, gets killed because of this great persecution. But even that persecution, even that stoning of Stephen turned out to be for good because that sparked the spreading of the gospel. After that moment, after that um, event, the early church, they're scattered to places in like, like Samaria and Judea, and as they're scattered, they continue to preach the gospel, and that's how the gospel spread, and that's how it crossed boundaries. You have Samaritans that were saved. You have a man who was involved in uh, the occult, Simon the Sorcerer, he is saved. You have an Ethiopian eunuch who is saved. How does that happen? Because the church was persecuted, because Stephen was martyred and killed, because the church spread out into these other places. So you see, God always has a plan. He always has a plan. And even in this persecution, God has a plan. And so if that's something that you believe, how do we pray? Look at these early believers. God, this persecution, it has to be according to your plan. We want to be faithful. Make us bold so that we continue to preach your word. That's what we need. Help us to be bold, to continue to be faithful in the midst of what's going on around us. Yeah, I think we really need to reflect on this prayer and pray it ourselves as a church. Uh, you know, as I said before, I, I do really think it's a deep conviction in my heart. Fear is playing a really big role in hindering us, both individually and collectively. It's hindering us from doing good ministry good gospel ministry. And we may not even realize it because that fear is so embedded. You know, I heard a pastor say, you know, he used to think Christians uh, weren't generous with their money and Christians didn't give uh, because they were being greedy. 
but as he uh, got older, he said something. He said, I realized it wasn't because they were being greedy. It's because they were afraid. And here's what he meant by that. They were so afraid to give because uh, they would say, you know, if I give this amount of money to this charity or to the church or to this ministry, what is my life going to look like? Am I going to have the same amount of security that I have now? Am I going to be able to save up and buy this place that I want to buy? Am I going to live this kind of lifestyle? Uh, what if I have a life change? What if I lose my job? I need some kind of uh, you know, savings just in case something, uh, some kind of emergency happens. And of course, you know, uh, I don't think the Bible is against doing any of those things, and you've really got to analyze your heart. But he would say, you know, but the reason people don't give is because of fear. Uh, I think why community building is so difficult, uh, you know, you could say a lot of things. You can say, oh, people are busy scheduling, right, all that stuff. You know why I think community building is so difficult? I think it's fear. I think there's a fear of rejection. I think there's a fear of judgment, which hinders vulnerability. I think there's a fear of commitment. If I commit to these people or to this group, uh, what if some other group or some other people I like better come along and I want to hang out with them? And, you know, for those of you who have kids, right, fear of missing nap time. Uh, I can't go to this thing because, oh, my kid's going to miss nap time. Their routine's going to get all messed up. And uh, if their routine gets all messed up, I'm going to pay for it later. My child's going to be insane later. And, uh, you know, I want to go to sleep at a reasonable time. My child's going to end up going to sleep at 10 p.m. And I just can't do that, right? Probably fear. I think fear makes community building really hard. And, you know, of course, the most obvious fear is this. Just be who you are. Just be honest. If you're a believer, if this is what you believe, be honest about your faith. And talk about Jesus. Talk about what you did this weekend. You went to church on Sunday. But, you know, what are we afraid of? We're afraid of offending. We're afraid of being seen as a Jesus freak. We're afraid of being judged. And maybe this is a category that many of us fall into in terms of what we're afraid of. We're afraid that once people know that we are a Christian and they see how we act at work, we're going to misrepresent Jesus. (laughs) And we don't want that, right? Fear. I really think it's fear that is holding not just our church, but believers everywhere back. You know what we need to pray for? God, make us bold. Make us bold. And if we can pray that, and if God does that, I think it will release a lot of your gifts and ministry. Now, Uh, We didn't get to talk about this verse too much, and I'm not going to get to talk about it a lot because uh, time is almost up, but uh, just look at verse 31 for a minute, and after they had this spontaneous prayer meeting, uh, look at what happens. It says this, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? You know, the Holy Spirit came down in this event in Acts chapter 2 at something called Pentecost, and if the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, what does it mean here that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, I think the short answer is probably this. I think there are moments where we experience God and his presence in a very heightened way. Uh, Some of you folks who participated in the trip over the summer, you probably know what this passage is talking about. You probably experienced God in a heightened way. And when you came back, I'm going to guess you were much bolder than you had previously been for whatever reason. And I think it's because you experienced the Spirit in a heightened way. And I think that's really what we need at the end of the day in order to do good ministry. In order to be bold, I think we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
in a heightened way. How does that happen? Uh, I don't think it's rocket science, friends. <laughs> How did it happen here? They just got together and they prayed together. I don't think that kind of filling of the Spirit is going to happen if we're not meeting up together and gathering together and praying together and worshiping together. I just don't think it's going to happen. Now, I don't know. Uh, man, I was like so wrestling with like, is it time for our congregation to get a rebuke? Not yet, okay? <laughs> not yet. Especially not around Christmas, but maybe next year. <clears throat> but guys, come on. What is really more important than gathering together in prayer? <laughs> if you're a believer, if this is what you believe, if you believe God is beautiful, Jesus is beautiful, Jesus is worthy, the gospel is the best message in the world, and that people need to hear it and know it and encounter Christ, what could be more important than gathering together and praying? Really? You know, if I have a dream as a pastor, uh, it's not that we would have a big church. That's probably why our church isn't big, because I don't really focus and think about it too much. Uh, if I have a dream as a pastor, it's this. Uh, prayer meetings like this would just spontaneously sprout up all over the city. That there would be a movement of prayer all over the city, not just in our church, all churches because I do think when that happens people will be bolder people will be more on fire because they will be filled with the Holy Spirit and I think we'll be happier too actually <laughs> in a strange way right some of us are looking for happiness right in all these different avenues and we think this will make us happy in a strange way I think if that happens we'll actually be happier people um, let's do it let's analyze our hearts let's see what we're afraid of let's see what's holding us back and let's commit to being a people of prayer and look ministry, uh, speaking of control the first thing pastors want to do is have control over how the church turns out or how ministry turns out or how people turns out uh, you know what I know as a pastor at age 36? I, I, I have very little control, if any. I can't control your hearts. I can't control my, my heart, even. Um, but I do know God is in control. And for me, that gives me hope. And when God wants to, he's going to awaken our hearts and give us this deep conviction and desire uh, to pray, to worship, to be bold, to live for him sacrificially. Uh, join me in dreaming for this, please. Uh, and I think if God does this, uh, we will be really, uh, we will be a changed people. I really believe that. Let's pray together.